Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Save the date, July 29, 1981. My son, Prince Charles, will be married to Lady Diana Spencer at St. Paul's Cathedral. 600,000 lined the streets, but only 3,500 got an invitation to the wedding. How many of those 3,500 do you suspect replied to the Queen, sorry, I had other plans that day. And of the 3,500 who got into that magnificent cathedral of Sir Christopher Wren, only 125 of them were invited to the meal that followed. How many of those, do you think, failed to show up? They had a royal wedding, and everybody came to the royal wedding. Matthew says once upon a time there was a king who had a son who was about to be married, and he sent out an invitation, save the date. And when the date arrived and the meal was prepared, he sent his servants to the people saying, Come now, everything is ready. And they would not come. Number one, they would not come. The parables we've been dealing with for weeks now have been about the invitation, remember. Dr. Brandon Scott says it's about an invitation. You are invited to come into the kingdom of God. We've been saying it for 2,000 years. The Jews have been saying it for 3,800 years. And there are many who say, no, I'm not coming. Not coming. Not participating. Not going to be a part of any of that. Thursday morning, I went to a four-hour meeting with 29 other people from the heart of our city. 48 hours before, something that we felt was such a yes had been to a majority a no, and the question was, where do we go next? What do we do now? We love our city, we love our state, we love our country. How do we help Tulsa take the next step? Now, there were lots of solutions uh, offered, perhaps in the next four hours, lots of ideas suggested, things written on pieces of paper and prioritized and so on. One of those who spoke first early that morning had reminded all of us of something that Lord Alton of Liverpool had said to a bunch of British folk not so long before. 
If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you were more blessed than the million men, women, and children who will not survive the week. If you've never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation, you are more blessed than 500 million people on the planet. If you can attend a church or political meeting without fear of harassment, arrest, torture, or death, then you are more blessed than 3 billion who live on our planet. If you have food in your refrigerator, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you are richer than 75% of those who share the planet with you. If you have money in the bank or wallet or even coins in your pocket, you are among the top 8% of the wealthiest in the world. If you can read, you're more blessed than 2 billion people on our planet who today cannot read. This is the age of more rights and more choices, but an age of declining responsibilities. We've been to the moon and back, but won't cross the street to meet a new neighbor. We've split the atom, but not our prejudice. We have higher incomes, but lower ethics. There are times of tall men and short character, steep profits and shallow relationships, more leisure, but less fun, endless kinds of food for some and starvation for others. These are days of two incomes, but more divorce, grander houses, but broken homes, drugs that save and drugs that kill, of endless acquaintances, but fewer friends, frenzied activity, but isolated loneliness. We have bigger houses and smaller families, more conveniences, but less time, more degrees, but less sense, more knowledge, but less judgment, more experts, fewer solutions. We have taller buildings, but shorter tempers, wider freeways, but narrower viewpoints. We buy more and enjoy it less. We've multiplied our possessions, but reduced our values. We talk too much, love too little, hate too often. We've learned how to make a living, but not a life. We've added years to life, but not life to our years. They just wouldn't come. Number two, he said again, and here's one of Matthew's favorite words, as I've been telling you all year, Hidu, translated for us as behold. It's not in your translation. The translators finally got tired, I guess, of seeing this word so many times, thought it was being overused. But Matthew has it again and again. Behold, the dinner is ready. Uh, the calves, the ox, and everything, it's ready. Come now. And they made light of it. As Matthew recounts the story, they made light of it. They didn't take it seriously. I was reading an article the other day about Michael Caine, the actor. Two Academy Awards, four Golden Globes. He's 74 years old now. Been married to his wife for 34 years of that. Michael Caine was not a child of privilege. He was a child of poverty. He was born in 1933 in England. Uh, the Nazi bombing would begin when he was a small child. His father was a cockney. Remember My Fair Lady? How Eliza Doolittle talked before she meet, met Henry Iggins? Well, that's the way Michael Caine's family talked. His father worked in the fish market. Oh, he didn't get to be the monger. Uh, that was a step up from his job. His job was just carrying the fish. 
into the marketplace, icing them down, and when someone bought them, taking them to the cart or the carriage or the cars. His mother was a charwoman. He never saw a movie till he had three pennies to go to the three-penny opera, and he saw The Lone Ranger and decided, I could do that. I could do that. If you read the biographies of other well-known actors in England who've been knighted by the Queen, Sir John Gielgud, Sir Lawrence Olivier, Sir Ralph Richardson, uh, their biographies say, One day my nanny took me to the theater, and by the time the curtain had risen and I'd seen the costumes and had heard the songs of the actors, I knew what I needed to be. No nanny took Michael. Well, Michael wasn't his name. His name was Maurice Micklewhite. When he told his family he wanted to be an actor, they said, uh, you talk funny like we do. You've got to talk posh, they said. You have to talk posh. But he was determined, and he kept moving toward that goal, moving toward the goal. Well, he's done well, and he has a new movie coming out this fall, and he's 74 years old. He was asked about that. He said, well, there are a lot of 74-year-old actors who sort of turned their career over to their agents years ago, and these agents are high-handed. They say, Michael Caine would never wear that. Michael Caine would never say that. Michael Caine would never do that. And I say, send me the script. And I read it, and I say, I can gain 10 pounds, I can lose 10 pounds, I can shave my head, I can wear a hairpiece. Because the one thing I can tell you is, I've done the best I know how to take every day seriously. I deal with life exactly as it comes. If only these folks in the parable had done the same, they made light of the invitation. Well, Matthew says the king was enraged. Dr. Brandon Scott, can, can you imagine why? I mean, to refuse the invitation of a king was rebellious. It was rebellion, and every hearer of this story would have understood that. And so Matthew tosses something in here, scholars believe, that wasn't there in the original telling. This part about the king burning down the city. Supposedly does it in an afternoon. He burned down their city, which would have been his city too, you see. When did the city get burned? It got burned in 70. The temple destroyed in 70 by the Romans. Jesus had already had death and resurrection uh, 40 years before that. Matthew wants to show you the enragement of the king. The king was so unhappy that he said, go out into the streets now, bring everybody, invite everybody. Brandon Scott says, think about what's happening to the king here. If you have only rich and powerful who come to your son's wedding, then you are richer and more powerful. If no one will come but the people of the streets, some good, some bad, what does that do to you? You have been shamed, if you would. This is a king willing to be shamed. This is a landowner willing to be shamed. This is a person of power and might and wealth who's willing to come into a banquet with good and bad, rich and poor, powerless, voiceless, so many in the society. If somehow this one can see the best in each one, be aware of the worst, see the best, hope for, work toward, promote, encourage the best. There's a new book out about World War II, specifically about the Allies' campaign through Italy. 
Gail and Jason and I have been to Sicily. Gail's grandparents came from Sicily, as you know. A major offensive was launched into Sicily in July 1943. This was long before the invasion at Normandy, when so many came across the English Channel. Um, General George Patton's Third Army was was sent against uh, Sicily, and the English uh, Army under Montgomery was sent into Sicily. Uh, It was a tough fight. It took two months for them to get across Sicily and be ready now to attack the mainland of Italy. Um, That took place in September 1943, and the next seven months were some of the fiercest fighting in the war. Many of you knew Mr. Armand Bost of our church. His brother uh, was killed in that fighting as they moved northward toward Florence. His brother was killed just outside Florence and buried in a military cemetery um, uh, after the war was over. It was made a beautiful place, uh, but a very sad place as well. Thousands and thousands died there. Uh, Some of the fiercest fighting was at the base of Monte Cassino, as you recall. Uh, That war went on for weeks and weeks. Uh, Bombing could not dislodge the German forces from atop the mountain. Uh, Finally, they decided they would just have to bomb the whole thing. And so a monastery uh, that dated back 1,400 years was bombed off the top of the mountain, and Monte Cassino finally fell. We rebuilt that monastery after the war, uh, but the 1,400-year-old one was gone forever, of course. This new book about that campaign says that the fighting was so fierce in mid-February 1944 that one afternoon a young German soldier with a white flag affixed to a stick uh, came out of a foxhole and moved toward the Allied camp. Uh, They allowed him to come forward and he proposed that there be a cessation of the fighting long enough for both sides to pick up their wounded and dying. And all of those who had already died, there were thousands of bodies on the hills of Italy stinking in the hot, baking sun. And even in wintertime now, some of them having been there for weeks, this young soldier was proposing both sides pick up their their dead and their dying. It was acknowledged, okay, we will do it. All gunfire ceased. And both sides came rushing out of foxholes from behind trees and and buildings and started picking up their wounded and dying and dead. And this went on for several hours. And and finally, men were offering each other a cigarette, a a German, an American, an American, a German, a piece of chocolate uh, candy that he had taken out of of his rations. Uh, They were talking, shaking hands, trying to understand each other. And then the signal was given, it's time to do war again. And they all rushed back to the foxholes and fought for 16 more months with thousands more deaths. If we could find the best, you see, if we could remember that every person who goes into war is some mother, some father's child, somebody's brother, somebody's spouse, somebody's mother, father, if somehow we could do justice in the world, if somehow we could do righteousness, if we could find better ways somehow to deal with the really bad ones among us, to understand that somehow we're all in this together, the good and the bad, all have been invited to come. All have been invited to come. Now we have to deal with each other as this king has to deal with us all. Number four. There's a rather strange thing there about the king coming into the dinner and seeing that one fellow wasn't properly dressed. And he said, throw him out the back door. 
This seems strange again. Those who, who comment on this story say, well, wait, this isn't right. I mean, Matthew sort of bungled the story here a little bit. Uh, if this man's just been invited off the street to come in the banquet, he didn't have time to go change clothes. What's that all about? And scholar after scholar came up with the same answer as I was reading this week. And Dr. F.W. Baer, Dr. Robert Gundry, Dr. Edward Schweitzer, Dr. Eugene Boring, Dr. Brandon Scott, they all say this business of clothing is about behavior. That in the early church, the change in one's life that came at baptism, at profession of one's faith, was dramatized by changing clothes. You wore your old clothes to your baptism, and you changed into new clothes as you walked away from your baptism because you'd been changed. And the scholars say that this is Matthew's point here, that you've been invited in by the grace of God that you and I have come to know in Jesus Christ. But there will come a day when you will be judged whether you're wearing the right clothes or not, whether your behavior was indeed changed by your confession of faith. The Wesleys said it this way, We should have many moments in our lives of justifying grace when God's Holy Spirit whispers to our spirits, Well, I've set you right with me one more time. We were at the Lord's table last Sunday. I hope you heard that whisper of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm setting you right with me one more time. You're my daughter. You're my son. I'm setting you right with me. But the Wesley said in every one of those justifying moments, it is also a sanctifying moment when the Holy Spirit of God, sanctify is from the Latin sanctus, we translate holy, it means set apart in both languages, when our behavior is supposed to change. We are supposed to act differently from all these other people who are not people of faith. We're supposed to act as if we know this one God made clearest to us in Jesus Christ and act like Him, not like them, you say. It's about clothing. Clothing is about behavior. One more story. Sue Monk Kidd wrote a book published last year by the Guidepost Press called First Light. And in this book, she talks about those moments in her life, some of them at least, when a light came on and she saw more than she had seen before. Um, she had been a Christian a long time, <clears throat> now wife and mother when she, the story she's recalling, and her daughter at that time just seven years old. Uh, she said one, one afternoon she and her daughter had gone shopping, and they were walking down a sidewalk as they approached one store, and there was a tall man standing just outside the door there on the sidewalk uh, with very dark glasses on and a cigar box in his hand. Now, Sue said, I didn't know this man, so I don't know that he was blind, but that was the implication, that he was blind and that he was dependent upon the goodwill of others. And when he would hear someone approach, uh, he would shake the cigar box, and people were dropping in nickels, dimes, quarters. She said, I don't think my daughter had ever seen a beggar before. I'm sure she had not seen this particular man, and she just stopped looking at it. I mean, just walked up, stopped, and just stood there looking. And Sue said, I caught her by the arm and we got on inside the store. But I noticed that my daughter had walked back to the plate glass window and was standing there looking at this man. 
watching him shake the cigar box. She had gotten close enough to peek inside, and she'd seen those nickels, dimes, and quarters. And when I paid for the things we had bought, she turned to me and said, Mama, can't we give him something? And she said, I opened my coin purse. Now, she said, I don't carry much money, cash with me. And I opened the coin purse and held it over so my daughter could see. I had a $1 bill and two quarters. And I said to her, you can put two quarters in the box. But my daughter saw more than I had seen. I saw a tall man with dark glasses and a cigar box. Somehow, this seven-year-old girl felt she was related to him. She was related to him. And she looked at me and said, Please, Mama, give him the dollar, too.